0: you to take your Bibles with me and open them to Amos, chapter 2 this morning. Back to the Old Testament book of Amos, a smaller book towards the back of your Old Testament. Chapter 2, picking up this morning in verse 6. Now, many of you will be able to identify with me when I say that uh, growing up in my very young years, I was often perplexed and frightened at how much my parents seemed to know about me and know about what I did. And I grew up hearing the familiar metaphor that my parents had eyes in the back of their heads, an analogy that stresses the fact that they knew and saw more than I realized. Now, I prided myself on being uh, discreet, hiding my orneriness, and yet there was always this come-to-Jesus moment, where my parents would call me out for my actions and let me know that they realized what I had done. I had not indeed kept anything from them. And such a a gesture from my parents, it not only alarmed me, it often prevented me from doing things because I didn't want them to find out. Well, the same is true with God and His creation. God does not have eyes in the back of His head. But He does have all-seeing eyes. His eyes never close in sleep. They never look away in distraction. They never turn away in careless indifference. God's eyes are always squarely and solely and perfectly fixed upon His creation. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, we're reminded and even warned... That no creature is hidden from his sight. but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything all the time perfectly. And this is true for the Israelites as we come now to Amos chapter 2 verse 6. This was a lesson that they should have learned and should have known by now. And it's a lesson that God's going to reiterate with them as he begins to highlight not only just the judgment on these other nations, but the judgment on his own people, Israel itself. So you remember in chapter 1, in the first part of chapter 2, God has been, through Amos the prophet, looking at all the surrounding nations, seven different nations, six of them pagan nations, meaning they didn't have God's word, they didn't walk with God, they didn't know God. They all surrounded Israel on the compass, on the map. God pronounces Judgment on them for wickedness that he sees in their land. Last week, we considered even his judgment and condemnation on Judah. In chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5. God sees and God knows that Judah rejected the law of the Lord. And so punishment comes. And I've said week in and week out that this point in verse 6 of chapter 2 is what Amos is building to in the first part of his message here he's getting Israel into a corner wherein they cannot deny the fact that they are guilty before God at this point they were probably celebrating celebrating God's judgment on all these other nations celebrating God's judgment on Judah and then in verse 6 God directs his attention to them and let's read verse 6 through the end of the chapter this morning Amos says, Thus says the Lord, and here's what God says. For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in to the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Well, up to this point, we've followed a pretty standard pattern as God has addressed all of these other nations. And when He turns to Israel in chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 7, He begins to follow the same pattern, but then there's a striking obvious difference for Israel. It's the length of the sins that God mentions about them. In fact, what we find in Israel is what we have found in all of the other nations already. Some form or fashion, plus a few extras. Cruelty against people, we find it in Israel. Acts of abuse, we find that also in Israel. We find acts of immorality. We find uh, phony, fake religion. All of it meant to convey that if you think these other nations are guilty then so much more so is Israel guilty. We've talked about Paul highlighting this very principle in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You who pass judgment, do you not also realize that you are without excuse? That you will also be judged? In passing judgment on one another, you approve of your own judgment, Paul teaches. That's what Israel has done. If they celebrate and if they agree in any degree to what, God has said about these other nations, then they have agreed and approved of their own judgment as God now comes to them in verse 6, 7, through the end of the chapter and highlights the exact same things are found in you. Not an exhaustive list, but a clear, communicated message from God that nothing of what they have done, nothing of what they have desired, Nothing of who they are has been obstructed from His eyes or His knowledge. Brothers and sisters, God sees all things. Nothing is hidden from His sight. Nothing ever goes unnoticed. Nothing ever escapes His watchful eye. Israel's lengthy list communicates that God knows them intimately God knows every detail about them and that they are indeed guilty we can break up Israel's sin I think into two different categories verses 6 7 and 8 will be one category verses 9 10 and 11 and 12 will be another category we begin in 6, 7, and 8, with their sins against people, um, their disregard for people. Again, finding all of the same sort of punishment or same sort of, of troubles from the other nations here in Israel, we, we start off with God highlighting what I'm calling a compassionless greed. A compassionless greed. In verse 6, he tells us why he's not going to revoke the punishment. And he begins with the righteous. They're dealing with the righteous. They sell the righteous for silver. Now, if you know the Bible, you know how God thinks about the righteous. The righteous are those who follow God and trust in God. They're not those who are perfect, but they are those who belong to God. Here's a few verses of what the Bible says of God's attitude toward the righteous. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 12, it says... You, Lord, bless the righteous. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Psalm 34, verse 15 The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Psalm chapter 1, we're told, The way of the wicked will perish, but not the way of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. They're his people. He's with them, and they are with Him. He knows them, and they they know Him. That's how we should treat the righteous. In other words, the Bible tells us that the righteous are near to the heart of God. They matter to God. And if we want to care for what God cares for and love what God loves and honor what God loves or honor what God honors, then we should also honor the righteous. But Israel sold the righteous. Just like these other nations selling off whole peoples into other countries as slaves. Israel sells them for silver. A few coins in the pocket. It, it has embedded within it a, a deeper a deeper trouble also. Not only are they, they willing to sell the righteous for a few extra coins. But it means that they... They would rather have money than godliness. They would rather have wealth than the favor or example or fellowship with those who walk with God. Secondly, he says in verse 6, They not only sell the righteous for silver, they sell the needy for a pair of sandals. Again, God's Word says just as much about the needy. In fact, it may say more about the needy than it says about the righteous. Here's a few instructions about uh, the way that God expects His people to deal with those who are poor and needy. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy and to the poor. It's in the heart and character of God to care for those who are in need and less fortunate. That's what he does. That's what he's done for us, spiritually speaking. A proverb, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. but he who is generous to the needy honors God. God cares for the needy. And if we want to be godly, we also must care for the needy. But Israel, just like with the righteous, they didn't care for the needy. They were willing to sell them for a measly pair of sandals. Here's the point. Whether for great gain via silver or measly gains via via a pair of sandals Israel was disregarding people and selling them off for whatever personal benefit they could get whatever personal profit whatever personal gain they might get from abandoning another person they were willing to do it our God is a God who is mindful of human beings his eyes not sit, don't just sit on them only in, in judgment. His eyes sit on human beings in great care. He extends even common grace to the whole world so that we have clothing and, and oxygen and most of us have food and shelter. God cares for humanity. And it is a travesty before Him for human beings to not care about other human beings. So They had a compassionless greed. They were greedy for whatever gain they could get with no concern, no care for the people that they had to sell to get it. Verse 7. They refused justice. They're known as those people who trampled the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. It's meant to be a graphic image from the prophet. Highlighting the, the nature of, of how they would ravage people for their own benefit. It connects back to the, the needy for a pair of sandals. So apparently, not only did they sell them, but as they were trying to, to deal with the poor and deal with the needy, they had no problem trampling them down into the dust. There's no mercy, no gentleness, no compassion, no care. But then further on in verse 7, not only do they trample their head into the dust of the earth, they turn aside the way of the afflicted. That, that word there, turn aside, or that phrase, turn aside the way of the afflicted, it carries with it the idea of being in court. When, when a person who's been wronged brings their case before a judge and expects to receive justice only in israel they were turning those people away so the poor who's being trampled into the dust had nowhere to run for relief the courts were corrupted justice had been averted there was no justice in the land anymore everything was done based upon the gain of those in power and those with a position, and those with the means. Well, moving on, it doesn't get any better. They not only had a compassionless greed, they not only refused justice in their land, they embraced immorality. A man and his father go into the same girl. This is actually a tricky A tricky statement to interpret, not because of the act, but because of the context. There's a lot of debate about exactly what's going on here. Because God connects this uh, indictment with. So that they profane my holy name. So that leads me and a few others to think that this is a religious endeavor, that they're going into the same girl like they go into cult prostitution If you consider in verse eight, the reference to every altar, and if you consider also in verse eight, the reference to a a house of their God, there seems to be this indication that they were not only being immoral, but they were being immoral to a degree that one was wrong even among Gentiles and two, they were being immoral in the name of religion. And as God's people, anything they did in the name of religion was done to some degree in the name of God. A man and his father committing immorality in the name of God. So that God's holy name is profaned. If you know your Old Testament, you know that. Few things matter more to God than his holy name. His pure and set apart name. Israel, his own children, his own people had actually come to the place of profaning his name. Laying down their immoral acts beside every altar. Well, moving on again in verse 8. There's still more to come. They're not only committing immoral acts beside every altar, they're committing immoral acts on garments taken in pledge. This is a reference to their interaction with the poor. One of the the references or one of the means that the poor had uh, in Amos' time to secure a loan or to secure work or to secure any kind of help is that in the mornings they would take their outer garments and they would use them as collateral and they would give them to somebody who could loan them money or give them a job, and that was called giving your garments in pledge. And then at the end of the day, the garments were supposed to be returned to the poor so that nobody had to endure the nighttime cold without clothing. Apparently, in Amos' day, Israel uh, was not only committing immorality, they were abusing the system. Abusing the system by taking these garments in pledge, not giving them back. And actually using them for their acts of immorality. Refusing basic necessities. Of needy people for their own comfort and pleasure and leisure. Well finally in verse 8. We find that they're going into the house of their God. And notice the way God references it their God. Going in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who've been fined. In other words, they were eating and drinking and being merry, much like in the days of Noah. They're levying a fine upon. People who likely can't pay this this fine and they're taking the proceeds of those unjust fines and they're using them to pay for their parties. And so in the house of God, they're going in and they're celebrating their lives. Indulging in their comforts, indulging in their luxuries, indulging in their pleasures. It's a massive disconnect from reality. Furthermore, the fact that they're doing it in the house of God means that they think they're actually right in God's eyes. They, they commit all these other acts. They sell the righteous for silver. They sell the needy for sandals. They trample the poor into the earth. They refuse justice for those who are afflicted. They commit gross acts of immorality to profane the name of God they abuse the system and then they celebrate then they party with no remorse no repentance no concern no care no idea That eternity literally hangs over their head by one breath. Totally thinking that they're right with God. Blessed by God. Garnering his approval. Remember, this is a a time of, of great prosperity in Israel's history. In fact, many regard it as the most prosperous time in the country's history. There's military peace, economic prosperity, marketplace flourishing. It's easy to mistake all of this for God's approval. But in a, like I said, a mass disconnect from reality, they have no idea that God actually is bringing judgment upon them, even for their Heartless celebrating. Well, those are sins against people. Those are, are, are sins committed against fellow human beings, and they're, they're of a different kind. But Israel's committed more sins. Not only have they committed sins against people, they've committed sins against God. verse 9, God begins to relay what he's done for them. He says, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before you. He describes the Amorite, he's like a a tree who's got his height uh, in the tops of the cedars, he's as strong as an oak and God says, I'm the one who drove him out and gave you this land. He says, in fact, I didn't just drive out the Amorite, I destroyed his fruit above and his root beneath. It was a A thorough defeat against an enemy much mightier than you. It was my hand that gave you this land. Verse 10. I also brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you from another mighty nation. From your slavery, I led you for 40 years in the wilderness, providing food for you, shelter for you, water for you. Your clothes didn't even wear out so that... Verse 10, you might possess the land of the Amorite. Verse 11. Even raised up some of your sons for prophets. And some of your young men for Nazarites. I gave you men to speak on my behalf and to instruct you concerning my ways and to give you my word. And I. I raised up men who would become Nazarites, who would take a vow and they would serve me in intimacy. And then he asked that rhetorical question in verse 11. Is, is it not indeed so? The answer is abundantly yes. We've seen this all throughout Israel's history. Of course, God has driven out nations mightier than they. Of course, God delivered them out of Egypt and sustained them in the wilderness and then gave them the promised land. And of course, he's risen up prophets and others to serve him that they might also serve Israel. But here's their sin. Verse 12. First, you made the Nazarites drink wine. That's a reference to making them break their vow, break their commitment. There's a lot of mystery uh, surrounding some of these things. But in some degree, the Nazarites were set apart to serve God in unique ways in And one of their vow requirements was not to drink any wine. And so when Israel actually made them drink wine, they broke their vow and thus were unable to serve God and bless Israel. Whether it was a forced breaking of the vow, a tricked breaking of the vow, it doesn't matter. God places the responsibility squarely upon the people of Israel. You made those that I set apart for service You made them to break their vows. Didn't think their vows were a big deal. Didn't think their service was important. Didn't think what I had set apart and instituted mattered. Secondly, in verse 12. You commanded the prophets. Saying you shall not prophesy. I, I find the other, other sins uh, that are mentioned for Israel wicked just like you do, but this one has to be the height of it all for me. God graciously gives messengers to carry forth His word. Graciously gives prophets so that he might be known, so that he might be followed, so that they might know the way to to flourishing, so that they might ultimately know the way to, to peace and the way to life and ultimately the way to Christ. But what did they do? Did they receive them? Did they embrace them? Did they listen to them? Did they sit at their feet and learn? No. They commanded them to keep silent. They're going to do the same thing to Amos later on. They're not going to like his message. So they're going to command him, keep silent. And usually that's where it stems from, right? That we, we think as human beings that we're sound in our own wisdom, sound in our own understanding, that we have our lives together, that we have a better grasp on what it means to be a Christian and 2022 we improve or innovate upon this or that and so when those two things come together our our embrace of our own worldly wisdom and god's word that challenges it and even contradicts it those two things come to a head we often will choose our own ways and our own wisdom over gods in effect saying the same thing be quiet we've got this that's what they were doing That's what they're going to do to Amos. They don't want their peace and their political prosperity to be interrupted. And so, when God's word is shared via a prophet and it's challenging them or convicting them or against them, they command those prophets be silent. We will not hear from God, we will not be convicted. We will not have our sin exposed. We will not be corrected. It is the exact same thing as if you or I came to a church service and said, close the Bible. We will have nothing from God's word. That's what Israel was doing. Stopping their ears. Refusing to hear. Refusing to listen. Even refusing to recognize the gift that God gave them. You see, not only were they spurring God's grace, spurning God's grace, rejecting it, they were actually actively resisting it. They were actually proactive in their rejection of God's Word. And lest we look at them and think how how dare they? Remember the point of what Amos is doing here. He's forcing his listeners and he's forcing now his readers to not think how could they do that, but to look inwardly and realize how can I have done that? Do we not close God's word metaphorically? Do we not live in an age when God's word has been shut? Do we not live in a society that rejects God's word? Do we not reject it ourselves day in and day out? Many of you might be thinking, no, I don't don't say that I reject God's word. Not with my mouth. But I bet you do with your actions. Such was Israel's case. They, they thought they were doing right. Remember verse 8? They're drinking wine that they bought off the oppressed people's fines. They, they thought everything was great. They thought everything was grand. And chapter 5, we're going to be reminded they were even still going through their worship rituals. They thought they were walking with God. And yet by their actions, they had commanded the prophets to be silent. God is reminding Israel and by extension reminding you and I that He is not, is not playing games when it comes to what He expects in obedience or in holiness or in walking with Him in discipleship. Rejecting His Word is not something He takes lightly. So, what does he say to them in verse 13? I will press you down in your place. I find that to be sobering, that phrase, in your place, because the place that they're in is the land that God promised and the land that God referenced in 9:10. And 11, the land that he drove these other nations out and and that he led them through the wilderness to possess, this land that he he himself gave to them by his own hand. And he says, now, this place is not just going to be your land, it's going to be your grave. I'm going to press you down in your own place where you're at. He says, I press you down as a cart full of sheaves presses down most everybody thinks this one phrase is the most difficult phrase in all of the book of Amos to interpret. It either means God is going to press them down like a cart full of grain crushes the dust underneath its wheels. Or it means God is going to press them down and split them apart like a cartful of grain splits apart the earth and makes a rut many people favor that because if you go back to chapter 1 verse 1 we're told that Amos is preaching two years before an earthquake we don't know what earthquake he's referencing there it's obviously big enough to serve as a, a time reference for his readers at the time Perhaps God is saying, I'm going to split the earth, split the earth like an earthquake in judgment on you. Regardless, the meaning is this God's judgment will be total, absolute, devastating, crushing. No one will be able to stand against it. No excuse, no escape. One scholar on Amos, well, the last name of Hubbard, said: Strength, speed, weaponry, nor courage will make a difference when it comes to God's judgment. He gets that because God says in verse 14, flight is going to leave the swift and the strong is not going to be strong anymore and the mighty is not going to be able to save his life and he who handles the bow, that's not going to matter. And the one who's swift or fast afoot is not going to outrun me and the one who rides the horse isn't going to save his life either. And the stout of heart among the mighty, the strongest of the strong will run away entirely vulnerable and exposed. There is no one who will escape. No strength, speed, weaponry or courage will make a difference. Smooth tongue, you won't outtalk or talk your way out of God's judgment. Fast feet, you won't run your way out of God's judgment. Virtuous moral living, you won't work your way out of God's judgment. Tending church won't save you from God's judgment. Being around Christians won't save you from God's judgment. Reading the Bible and praying every day, multiple times a day, will not save you from God's judgment. Thinking you're right with God, having good intentions, being ignorant, none of those things will save you from God's judgment. All of us are as if we have... Sold the righteous for silver or the needy for a pair of sandals. All of us exist before God as if we trample the head of the poor into the earth and turn them away from justice. All of us exist as if we've committed great acts of immorality in the name of God. All of us exist as if we've abused the system for our own comfort and pleasure. All of us exist like they did in the days of Noah, eating and drinking and being merry without any remorse or concern about ungodliness in their life. All of us have made the Nazarites to break their vow. All of us have commanded the prophets to keep silent. None of us will escape. Romans chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says the very same thing. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think because you're American and face little resistance in a free society that you will escape God's judgment, or that you live where we're born in the Bible Belt, you think that will afford you any leniency? You had Christian parents or Christian grandparents. Do you think that will help you on the day of judgment? That you agree with sermons that you hear? Or give away Christian books at Christmas? Do you think any of those things will help? Well, the point here for Israel that is unmistakable through the end of chapter 2 Is that since you are God's people, and since you had the prophets, and since you had God's word, and since you knew better, your guilt is more horrendous? I think I said it last week. They had grown complacent. And Amos is reminding them complacency is not okay. Not when it comes to walking with God. God has called us. Called us to live according to His own heart. Well, if you would, just flip over in the New Testament. Let's end with a, another passage here. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I think you and I have, uh, if we spent any real time contemplating, we would find ourselves in the list of sins that Amos describes. We might not ever tell the prophets to be quiet with our own words, but likely most of us don't pick up our Bibles throughout the week. We might not cause a Nazarite to break his vow, but we've told sour jokes or bad stories or. Done something to cause a brother or sister to stumble. We not, might not uh, oppress the poor like Israel did, but we certainly use people for our own benefit. We might not abuse the system like they did, letting corruption reign and justice be averted, but we often will use things for our own agenda. I think we can find ourselves in the list of Israel's sins. So, what do we do about it? If God was going to judge them, and if we sit here this morning in agreement that they did wicked things and deserve God's judgment, then we are, just like they did, in effect, approving of our own deserving of God's judgment. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I hope we find encouraging words. Paul writes to these believers, he says, Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. (coughs) For those who sleep, Sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Take note of verse nine. For God has not destined us for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep. We might live with him. The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming quickly. And for some. It will come like a thief in the night. It'll come while they scream peace and security. It'll come like sudden destruction upon them. But for others. Verse four. By God's grace, we're not in the darkness. Verse 5, we're children of light, children of the day. God has revealed the truth of sin and salvation in the Scriptures and through His Son so that you need not remain in the darkness and in ignorance and in sin, but that through His free offer and mercy You can become a children of the light, a child of the day. You can know the way of salvation. You can know the forgiveness of God, so that verse 9 will be true for you that you will not be destined for wrath, but for salvation. Why? Because Christ Jesus, verse 10, died for us. Some of you are sitting here today, make no mistake. You are in darkness. You might know a lot of things. You might know the Bible pretty well. You might know the gospel. I hope not, but you might even be a member of this church. And yet, you're like Israel. You think you're right, but you're in the dark. And if the Lord were to come back today, His His coming would be of sudden destruction to you like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. The good news for you is the gospel. That Jesus offers forgiveness and salvation today. Right now. And there need not be any wait or linger to be right with God. Others of you today, you might be sitting here assured by the Spirit of God that you actually are a child of the light, a child of the day. You are born again by the grace of Christ. What's your appropriate response? It's immense gratitude. Because the only thing that gets you from the darkness to the light is the grace of God. And the only thing that removes you from the wrath of God and sets you in the favor of Christ is the love of Christ. You respond with great gratitude. You should respond with great devotion. You should respond as God's Spirit's been convicting me, studying through Amos. You should respond with a greater devotion. Praise God, He stirs us from our complacency. A greater effort, a a greater desire at walking in, in the light and in holiness. But there's something else you should also do in response, Christian. You should continue believing the gospel. The gospel is not some starting line for the Christian faith that gets left behind as the race progresses on. The gospel is the the start, the middle, and the end for the Christian. It's the very bedrock that our foundations are built upon. It's our entire existence. So we don't only just believe the gospel at the beginning of Christian life. And then run on. We rest in the gospel. Find our security in the gospel. Our refuge in the gospel. I hope, like me he, again, Amos' book is convicting you of sin. And as I read this week, if it is, then you should not despair of grace. You should embrace it in the gospel of Christ. Perhaps, though, he's convicting you of sin because you need to be saved. Well, God's not pouring His wrath out just yet. He's extending the offer of salvation in Jesus. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord, place your faith in Him, and you will be saved. Our Father in Heaven, I just fear that sometimes human words don't do Your Word justice. Though Your Word is given to us in human words, and Common language, it couldn't be given any other way. It just seems that sometimes it's hard to articulate the weight, the magnitude of what your word is telling us. You found the most fault with your people. All those other nations, you mentioned one, maybe two things, but With Israel, you you mentioned a whole host of things. To show the the depth of how far they they had wandered off. And what's especially frightening, Father, is that they wandered off the path for so long without even knowing it. And I fear that we can easily do the same. O God, in great mercy, will you bring us back to the path? Keep us on the way of righteousness. Help us not veer to the left or to the right. Will you forgive us of our unrighteousness? And only celebrate when there's time to celebrate. And repent when there's time to repent. And mourn when there's time to mourn. Let us take our faith seriously, not as an addendum to life, but as the very center of life. Lord, I pray that you would expose in the hearts and the minds of the lost this morning their need for you as Savior. And that today they would respond in faith and be saved. For your children this morning, I pray that we would be humbled. And eternally grateful that you've brought us from darkness to light. I pray that as we're convicted of sin, you would help us to rest in the gospel. Also pray that you would help stir us up to greater devotion and faith in you, so that we wouldn't grow complacent or begin wandering. Help us, God, for we confess that we are weak and frail. But if we're led by you and your spirit, We have the assurance of being right. Help us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you for resurrecting from the dead so that we might have life in you. Let that be the very beat of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.